amazing grace. Preach it. Sing it. Live it. Tell men what God did before you tell men what to do. Christianity began, continues, and ends in grace. Everything ultimately depends upon God's grace. Christianity stands or falls on grace. The central and distinctive feature of the gospel is grace. The only permanent motivation in Christianity is grace. It is not our love for God, but God's love for us that motivates. When you awaken each morning, remind yourself that God loves you and that Jesus died for you. This is your Christian motivation. Sinners artificially got must be artificially kept. The cross saves. The gospel is good news. Bring sinners to the cross. Keep Christians at the cross. Never turn the good news into bad news. Christianity is not right answers to selected questions. Christianity is not performance-oriented. Christianity is not one's ability to pass a religious quiz at the judgment. Man cannot save himself by himself. Man cannot know enough, do enough, or live enough to earn or merit salvation. Sinners are not only in the hands of an angry God, they are in the hands of a loving God. Grace is the warp and woof of the Christian's entire relationship with God. We are saved by grace, and don't you ever forget it. And so begins chapter one of Brother Charles Hodge's amazing book entitled Amazing Grace. That is how chapter one begins with those words. He goes on to say on page three of that book, grace is the surprise of the gospel accounts. The miracle of miracles, what we dare not think cannot understand has happened. God, our enemy, the slayer of our gods, our justifiable accuser, has become our friend, 
our affirmer and our vindicator. Grace is positive acceptance in spite of the other person. I love that line. Grace is positive acceptance in spite of the other person. A demonstration of love that is unearned, undeserved, and unrepayable, isn't that what we just celebrated? That very thing. Unconditional love is hard to grasp. It is even more difficult to communicate, he says. I love you. I love you as you are. I love you unconditionally. Grace is the unalterable character of God's righteousness. Grace, grace, grace. Now, those words by Brother Hodge in the opening of his book reflect very well what the scripture says. They're very, very scriptural words. For example, let me give you a number of scriptures. I'm not going to really give you time to turn to them, but I've got them all typed out here, so I'm just going to read them to you. What he said is exactly and absolutely the Bible story. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 24. 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9 tells us about God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began. That was a plan from the beginning. It wasn't about, oh, they can be good enough to earn salvation. We can't. It's never been about that. Scripture goes on to say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. It's all about God's grace. Just as Brother Hodge said, Scripture said 2,000 years ago, Verse 7 of that text, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. That is Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. Scripture goes on to say in that same epistle to the Ephesians, God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come, yeah, he saved us by his grace, but he seated us with Christ Jesus in order that in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, and that's not of yourselves, not of works, lest any man should boast. Ephesians 2, 4 through 8. 
For when the kindness and love of God our Savior toward man appeared, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us, through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us abundantly through Christ Jesus our Savior, that having been justified by his grace, we should become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7. Therefore... Gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and rest your hope fully, fully on the grace that is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ, 1 Peter 1 and verse 13. I love, I love what Brother Hodge said at the very beginning when he said, Amazing grace, sing it, preach it, live it. Tell men what God did before you tell men what to do. You know something? When we're trying to reach out to people, we make a lot of mistakes. Probably all of us know of somebody we've tried to reach out to with the love of God and we've messed it up. Or it didn't work, or it was unsuccessful, or whatever. But his line, tell men what God did before you tell men what to do, the mistake that we often make as people is to totally misplace proper emphasis. We, we, we seem to have this habit we want to slip into where we, where we do Christianity exactly backwards and completely contrary to the way God says it should be done and then wonder why our Christianity is often so weak and powerless. Let me give you an example. Let me give you a good solid example of that. How many of you read the bulletin this week? Nobody. Well, it's, okay. If you didn't, please do that. Remember what you read if you did read it? In the bulletin, there was an article by Brother Dan Jenkins. And that article talked about how we sometimes reach out to people. What's the first thing we want to tell people that we're trying to reach out to with Christ? What's the first thing we want to Oh, you need to be baptized. No. That's the way we want to do it, but that's not the way it's done in the Gospels. I, I'm sorry, that's not the way it's done in the book of Acts. And that article goes through the book of Acts. What was the first thing that people were told in the book of Acts who needed Jesus? What were they told? You need Jesus. They were told the gospel. They were told about Jesus and how he came to save them and how they're sinners and how they need Jesus. That was the first thing. And I'm convinced in the church, if we would spend more time trying to convict people that they need Jesus Christ first and baptism second, that we would have more converts to Christ. We're not trying to convert them to baptism. We're trying to convert them to Jesus. Ain't that right? If we get them to fall in love with Jesus, baptism's easy. They're going to say what? Well, I'm in love with Jesus. What does Jesus want me to do? Solves it, doesn't it? But we have this misplaced emphasis. We want to go baptism first. And that's what that article's about. But you know, misplaced emphasis is not only something we often unleash on guests and potential new Christians, misplaced emphasis is something that we all too often unleash on ourselves. Misplaced emphasis. Even after decades of Christianity. And the results can be devastating. And the devil just loves it when we do that, when we misplace emphasis. Let me show you what I mean. We know from Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20 
that although Joseph's brothers had sold him into slavery and meant it for evil, God meant it for good. Genesis 15, verse 20. Similarly, I can say that word, see? Similarly, many of the good things that God has blessed us with, Satan will try to use for evil. God, God meant a lot of good blessings. He gave us so much that is good. And so often, what God means for good, Satan will seek to use to our detriment or for evil. That, that's the way Satan works. Listen, Satan is going to stop at absolutely nothing to take your soul to hell. It doesn't matter what he has to use. It doesn't matter what he has to try. He wants you in hell with him for all eternity. And he will use even the good stuff God gave us, try to pervert our viewpoint of it, try to get us to, to get a twisted picture of it so that it can't help us. He'll take the best God has given us and seek to pervert it and use it for evil. And he does this through three things, and these are very important. Lost focus. misplaced emphasis and a distortion of what is most important. For example, we've discussed this before, we all know the story. All the trees in the Garden of Eden were a blessing from God, right? God said you can eat of all the trees, right? That's, are you guys with me this morning? This is yes, this is no. Let's try it again. Thank you. Appreciate that, Adam. Okay. All the trees in the Garden were a blessing from God. They were wonderful. But Satan got to Eve basically by implying that all of those blessings from God, every last one of them, were no more than God's blatant attempt to distract them from eating from the one tree that would make them like him. That's how he got to her. He said, oh, all those, uh, no, 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 no. He said, God just doesn't, that's kind of a distraction God's giving you. He just doesn't want you to eat from this one because he knows the day you eat it, you'll be like him and God doesn't want that. All the other trees they could eat from, they were all a blessing from God. But Satan perverted and twisted that good thing. How about a second example? What about this one? Is the church of our Lord a good thing? Church of our Lord is good beyond our ability to understand, comprehend, or convey to anybody. It is, the it is priceless. The church of our Lord is the only earthly entity that the Lord Jesus Christ himself was willing to shed his priceless and perfect blood for. The only entity on earth that Jesus was willing to shed his perfect blood for. Acts 20 and verse 28. It is an incredible blessing, the church of our Lord, and yet... This awesome, wonderful blessing from God, if it is that good, and it is that good and more, then why are there so many people who say they want Jesus but nothing to do with his church? Hmm. Hmm. If, if, if the Lord's church is, is that good and it's that much of a blessing, and it is and more, if it was worth the blood of Christ, and to God it was. If it's that good, and it is, then why are there so many who are so willing to place so much more effort and emphasis on a useless, man-made, and man-named counterfeit than the one blood-bought church of our Lord Jesus Christ? Why? Well, I'll tell you why. Because Satan has taken something infinitely good the church of our Lord. 
Satan has taken something ultimately good, a priceless blessing from God, and he has so distorted people's view of it that they now see it in a totally different light than God ever intended it. To the point that Satan will now seek to use that which God intended for men's good to destroy both them and their relationship with God altogether by painting the church in a bad light. So you have two examples there of things that God meant for good, but Satan twisted and perverted people's perspectives of them and destroyed their relationship with God. One of those other or another third and incredibly, incredibly and infinitely good things that God has given to us, that Satan has twisted and, and perverted and continually seeks to distort people's perception of to their own destruction is the free gift of God's life-saving grace. God's grace, the greatest gift he ever gave us, which included Jesus Christ on that cross. That's grace in the flesh. That great gift of grace. Satan has, has so twisted and perverted this awesome, wonderful, beautiful thing, and we can't let him do that to us. You know, many today in some of these man-made denominations have accepted a very perverted, a very distorted view of even something as amazing as God's grace. Due to succumbing to Satan's perverted perceptions, these people, when it comes to God's grace, suffer from a loss of proper focus, they suffer from a misplaced emphasis, and they suffer from the distorted priorities by focusing on this twisted picture of grace to the point that they pay no attention to faithful obedience, holy living, and the good works they were saved to do in the first place, Ephesians 2 and verse 10. Because they see the grace of God as nothing more than a license to sin. That's all they see it as. Satan is so perverted, God's grace in their eyes, they see it as a license to sin. Oh, I can go live and do anything I want anyway. Well, God's grace will cover me. God's so loving and God's got so much grace, I can just go out and send up a storm and God doesn't care. He's not going to send anybody to hell. And that's a perverted picture of grace. Grace is not a license to sin. It's not. was never intended to be. Romans 6, 1 through 4. Paul writes, what shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? Or don't you know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even also we should walk in newness of life. It's as if Paul's anticipating the question, well, if God's got so much grace, why don't we just go out and do whatever we want? And God's grace got... Paul says, no! Don't you understand? God gave us his grace. He gave us his mercy. He gave us his forgiveness. He gave us his son to forgive our sins so that we could go live differently. 
Should we sin that grace may abound? No. He goes on in Romans chapter 6 and verse 15 to say, what then? Shall we sin because we're not under law and under grace? Certainly not, the New King James Version says. The English Standard Version says, by no means. The New American Standard Version says, may it never be. And the King James Version says, God forbid. Grace is not a license to sin. And while grace is certainly not a license to sin the way Satan has twisted and caused it to be perceived in so many religious and non-religious circles today, the question that we need to ask ourselves is this. Get this. Have, we, we understand it's not a license to sin, but the question we need to ask ourselves is, have we allowed Satan to distort our view of God's amazing grace in the totally opposite direction? Have some of us become so caught up in seeking to keep God's perfect standard so absolutely perfectly that we let Satan turn this wonderful process of our becoming transformed into the image of Christ into far more of a terrifying burden than the transformational blessing which God in his goodness intended it to be from the beginning. More simply put, do we at times allow Satan to get us to put so much emphasis on our doing everything flawlessly, perfectly, which is not possible anyway. We can't. We're human. Despite our best efforts, we cannot be perfect. But do we let Satan allow us to put so much emphasis on our doing everything perfectly and flawlessly, which is impossible for us anyway, that instead of a license to sin, we go so far the other way and we leave God's amazing love and grace out of the equation when we do fail, even though we've given it our best. Do some of us do that? That's the question for the morning. Do we do that? And, and if we do, you know, we, we, we make our best effort. How many, this is a dumb question, don't even raise your hands. I don't even know why I put it in question form because everybody's done it. Have you ever tried your best to please God and you messed up? You failed. You didn't want to fail. You would have cut your arm off before you would have failed, but you failed. You did it. You were trying to walk in the light. You were walking by God's word. You were giving everything you got. You were trying with all you had and you blew it. If at that point we leave God's love and grace out of the equation, Satan's got us. Because that's what grace is for. I need for you to understand. Please. If we leave God's love out of the equation when we're giving it everything we got to be the best Christian we can be and we fail, if we leave God's love out of the equation, where do we go from there? Because Satan loves it when we do that. You know, convincing us that we're not good enough because we messed up again, despite our best efforts, Convincing us that God couldn't love us because we messed up again, despite our best efforts. 
If we let Satan remove grace out of that equation, we might as well just use it as a license to sin because either extreme is wrong. Either extreme is not biblical. Either extreme is a misplaced emphasis. So you give it your best shot and you mess up. You leave grace out of the equation. And Satan tells you you're worthless. After all, it's about your performance. And you blew it. How could God love you? After all, you sinned and fallen short again. Listen, if you don't get anything else in this lesson, get this out of it. If Satan can get us to leave grace out of that equation, then Satan can get us to give up our salvation. If Satan can get us to leave grace out of the equation, he can get us to give up on our salvation. That's his end game. Now listen, I don't want anybody to go home with the wrong idea. This lesson this morning is not about minimizing our need to be obedient to God. It is not about that. Far from it. But what it is about is not letting Satan deceive us into minimizing, neutralizing, forgetting about, overlooking, or leaving out or distorting the grace of God while overemphasizing our performance or lack thereof to be able to carry out a perfect standard when it comes to our part in our salvation. Listen, have you ever known this just wonderful Christian person, this, this, this honest, wonderful, faithful, humble Christian brother or sister, one who truly sought with everything they had to please the Lord in everything they did, but yet that same person, that same person, even though they're giving it all they got and, and you look up to them and you respect them and they, they, they set this right example and they're humble and they're everything you'd want a Christian to be, but, but they lived in constant fear or turmoil and trepidation due to their inevitable inability and failure to perform everything perfectly. You know what? I've known Christians like that. And it's not just a past tense. I do know some Christians like that. Scripture also shows us one who wrestled with the same idea. Please open your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. You're going to see one who wrestled with this same idea. We know the story here. I'm not going to read a lot, but I need to read some because we've got to get this. Romans chapter 7. Paul is, is struggling. Paul wants to do the right thing with everything he's got. Paul, who planted churches and, and baptized people and, and wrote so much of our New Testament, Paul still struggled to do the right thing. There were times when he just wanted to do everything right for God and he messed up. He wrestled with that. Romans chapter 7, verse 18. The whole chapter is good, but we'll just start at verse 18. For I know that in me, that is in my flesh, nothing good dwells, for to will is present with me. He said, I want to do God's will. But how to perform what is good, I, I do not find. For the good that I want to do, I don't do it. But the evil I don't want to do, that's, that's what I practice. Paul was a mess. 
Verse 22, he says, but I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Have you ever felt wretched? Because you let God down again. Despite your best efforts, despite trying and really wanting to give God all you got, and you just, you, you knew what you ought to do, and you just messed up. You ever felt wretched? I felt wretched. I'll be honest. Been there. Paul was like that. But you know, what saved the Apostle Paul during those dark times when he let the Lord down, despite his best efforts, is the same one and only thing that will save us in those same sorts of times. And you know what that is? Romans chapter 8 and verse 1. If you read all the way through 7 and 8, there's a complete flow here. What he says in, in verse 24 of chapter 7, wretched man that I am, I just can't seem to get it all right. I'm trying, but I can't get there from here. Then look what he says. After he says, who's going to save me? Who's going to deliver me? Verse 24. Romans 8.1. Look what Paul knew. Smile, praise God, and hit your face, in hit your face on the ground in gratitude and worship. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Did you get that? If that is not highlighted in your Bible, why isn't it? There is now, therefore, even though you try and you fail, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We walk according to the spirit. We set our mind on the things of the spirit. We try, try to do the right spiritual thing. Notice it doesn't say perfectly. Paul said in chapter seven, I can't do it perfectly, I've tried. And I'm gonna keep trying, but I know I can't do it all. For the law, verse two, Romans eight, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ has made me free from the law of sin and death. Isn't it a wonderful thing to be free? Grace frees. For the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. He condemned sin in the flesh that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Okay, Paul. Well, how do you walk according to the spirit? Well, he tells you. For those who live according to the flesh, verse five, set their minds on those things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their mind on the things of the spirit. Where's your mind? For to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Listen to me. The Apostle Paul came to understand that his continued good standing with God was not based on flawless perfection, but was based more on where he had set his mind and sought to have his actions follow on a daily basis than it was on his own flawless perfection in carrying out everything, every little nuance of the will of God perfectly. Something that Paul wrote himself, he said, you can't do it. Do you know Paul wrote that? Paul said, you can't be perfect. You can't keep the law. If you could keep the law, Christ died for nothing. If you could be flawless, if you didn't need God's grace, Jesus died for nothing. Places he said that. Romans eleven six. 
Galatians 2, 20 and 21. Galatians 5, 4. You see, Paul came to understand God's grace. Romans 7, 24 and 8, 1. He came to understand God's grace and its place in God's plan of salvation, perhaps better than any man who ever lived. Out of the 170 times, 170, that the word grace is used in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul himself used it 101 of those 170 times. Think he knew something about grace? Uh-huh. He came to understand that, yes, grace is not a license to sin. But what grace is, and this is what we got to get, what grace is, is the inspiration to continually attempt the impossible, perfectly keeping God's perfect standard. It's impossible for us to humans to do, as humans to do that. Grace is the inspiration to continually attempt the impossible, perfectly keeping God's perfect standard, the freedom to fail knowing you cannot possibly achieve that perfection because you are, after all, just an imperfect human being, and the motivation to get back up and try again each time you do fail, knowing that God will never take into account your failure as long as you faithfully keep on trying, isn't God awesome? That's what grace is all of. God knows you can't do it all right and perfectly. He knows that. That's why the old law was given, was to bring us to Christ. It was a tutor to teach us, hey, you can't be perfect, you're human. Now, that don't mean we don't strive for it, and, and I hope nobody gets the wrong idea here. Listen. Grace is not the freedom to commit sin. That's not what it is. What grace is is the freedom from the consequences of sin as we live and seek to keep God's perfect heavenly standard. Grace is that unbelievably wonderful gift from God which motivates us to do more for God than we ever thought imaginable. Did you know that? That's what grace is. Grace is that, is that incredible gift that, that, that causes us that causes us to try to do more for God than we ever thought we could. That's what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 10. Listen, he said, by the grace of God. Now, Paul, remember, it said at one point, he said, as to the law, Paul was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He, he, if anybody came as close to keeping the law as you perfectly could, it was Paul. But he said, That's, all that stuff is rubbish. I don't want that kind of righteousness because I can't achieve that type of righteousness. But in 1 Corinthians 15, 10, he said, By the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain, but I labored more abundantly than they all, yet not I, but the grace of God which was with me. Listen, if you understand how much God loves you and what he did for you on that cross, if you get that, if you get that grace, and you know that if you live for him, his blood is going to continually cleanse you if you give it all you got and you fail, doesn't that make you want to work harder for God than you ever thought you could? What an awesome God. What amazing grace. But we leave this out so often. 
We continue to do these things, to serve God despite numerous failures and mistakes that we are inevitably going to make along the way, knowing that God will not remember or hold any of them against us because of his amazing grace. Listen, the great grace of God is the great motivator of God. And when we fail to be perfect, despite the best we've got, if we let Satan convince us to forget God's grace and what it does, then we are eventually going to beat ourselves up so bad and get so low because we have failed again that we're just going to be easy prey for Satan to just walk in and devour. That's what happens when you forget grace. That's what happens when your total Christianity is all based on your performance because you cannot measure up. Brother Hodge said this. This is just great. I love that book. Did I tell you I love that book? And I'm not making commissions or anything. I just love the book. Listen to what he says. If grace is not for sinners, it is not grace. If mercy is not for the undeserving, it isn't mercy. From beginning to end, it is all about grace and not man's merits. The truth about grace cannot be dangerous. And preachers in church Christ always, always have this little fear or trepidation of preaching a sermon like this because they're afraid somebody's going to get the wrong idea because grace has been so misportrayed out there in the religious world. They're afraid that, oh no, somebody's going to say that, that I don't think obedience is... You, I hope you know better than that. And if you didn't, go back and watch this again before you come to me and say, Douglas, don't you know we need to be... Yes, I know that. And you know what empowers me to serve God? His grace because I know how much he loves me. And I know if I'm giving it all I got, he's not going to hold my sin against me. Isn't God awesome? It's not about me. It's about him. It's not about me in the world. It's about Christ on a cross. Brother Hodge, I'm going to start preaching here in a minute. <clears throat> the truth about grace cannot be dangerous. Universalism is wrong. License is wrong. Cheap grace is wrong. Christianity is not a spruced up law of Moses. It's not. Christianity is a grace-faith system as opposed to law works. This is our faith and our hope. Grace cannot be explained by law. Grace is not, I love this line, grace is not too good to be true. Grace is too good not to be true. Legalist brethren, he says, always stumble over the depths of the grace of God. Legalism demands that you qualify. But grace that can be qualified for has ceased to be grace. It's like one before his banker seeking a loan. He has to prove financially he doesn't need the loan before he can get it. Did you get that? That's pretty good. That's really good. I'd read it again, but I'll run out of time. Moving on. Let me put this to you another way. This is my granddaughter, Hannah. <clears throat> Karen's too. And this little girl is absolutely perfect in her Grammy and Bumpa's eyes. In our eyes, she's perfect. Now, now let, me, let me throw this in there. That doesn't mean that she doesn't fail or have to be corrected from time to time. 
But what it does mean is that even when she fails, despite her best efforts, that even when she has to be corrected from time to time, that doesn't change her perfect status in her grandparents' eyes. Let me tell you a story that fits this whole lesson really well, I think. Hannah knows what the word crochet means. Mother and grandmother both crochet. She calls it cro-cro because she can't say crochet, but cro-cro, okay? So we're sitting over at their house here sometime in the last couple of weeks, and it's a rather big house from, from the living room on one end to kind of the living room on the other end. It's, it's a long ways in there, but anyway. We're sitting in one side, and, and Katie and, and Karen are sitting there talking about they thought they'd start crocheting. So little Hannah's buzzing around. She's running around like she always is, like a little tornado, just doing whatever it is that Hannah does. She disappeared. And a minute later, here she comes. She's gone into the far living room, gotten into Karen's craft bag, which was put up high so she couldn't reach it. And here she comes. In one hand, I don't remember which hand which was in, but in one hand, she's got the hat project that Karen's been working on the yarn of which is strewed all the way back through the house where the skein of yarn is unraveling in Karen's craft bag. That's the hat. In the other hand, she's got another skein of yarn, which is tied to another hat in the crochet bag. And as she's walking, this hat's getting smaller. It's unraveling. She is pulling the daylights, and here she comes. She's got a hat in one hand, she's got the ball of yarn in the other, and they're both connected back to the bag, dragging it across the floor. See, here's what happened. Here's what you got to understand. You think she got a spank for that? Not on your life. You know why? It's not because her grandfather's afraid to slap her hand, because he isn't. I'll tell you why. Because a minute or two prior to that, the girls were talking about crocheting. They thought they'd start crocheting. And so little Hannah, hearing the word crochet, figures she's going to help. So she walks into the other room because she's heard the word crochet, and she grabs her grandmother's crocheting. She's trying to help. To the best of her knowledge and ability, she is doing what she thought would please them. She's bringing the crochet into them. They said crochet. She's ready to have them do it. Did she do it perfectly? No, she's dragging stuff across the floor. Hat's unraveling. But I'll tell you what. She was giving it everything she had to try to do the right thing, even though she was messing it up. She's still perfect. And I want you to get that idea in your mind. And I want you to understand how that applies to God and us. Sometimes we don't know everything we're supposed to do. Sometimes we know and we try. Sometimes, despite our best efforts, we just mess it up. But God understands that there's going to be times we're going to mess it up. Despite our best efforts. Listen, I love this passage. You can turn there if you want. I'll even give you time. I'm not worried about the clock. Psalm 103. Turn there, would you please? This is worth turning to. This is, this is that story magnified to you as a child of the living God. Remember that illustration. And then let's read this. Psalm 103, 8 through 14. Understand that God understands. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. 
Verse 9 of Psalm 103, he will not always strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. For as the heavens are high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. Yes, we need to fear him. Yes, we need to serve him. Yes, we need to love him. But we need to understand when we do that he understands what we can't do. As far as the east is from the west, so far as he removed our transgressions from us, as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. He knows you are not going to be perfect. But you know what? You know what the beauty of this is? In his eyes, you still are. In his eyes, you still are. You hearing me, church? You've got to understand this. Remember, the same grace that saved you in the first place. Were you saved by grace when you were baptized? Were you? Yep. The same grace that saved you in the first place is the same grace that will save you in every place wherein you try your best but fail to be less than fully perfect. Please notice I have never left trying your best out of these equations. Listen to this passage that go along with that. Hebrews 4, 14 through 16 says, Seeing then that we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. Don't miss verse 16 as it relates to this lesson. Verse 16, let us therefore come boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Brethren, that wasn't written to people who weren't Christians. Hello. That wasn't written to people who needed to be baptized. Hello. That was written to Jews who had already converted to Christianity. And these people, when they didn't measure up fully to everything that, that they thought they needed to do or that God wanted them to do because they were weak and human in some ways and despite their best efforts, they failed. He said to them, come boldly to the throne of grace because that's where you're going to find grace to help in time of need. Your time of need, brethren, when you try and fail, when you give it all you've got and you still fall short, that is your time of need and that is the time you need to go get God's grace. The Apostle Paul is not the only one who understood God's amazing and ongoing grace in the overall plan of salvation. Turn to me in your Bibles to 2 Peter, please. The Apostle Peter understood grace. If you'd been the Apostle Peter in some of the ways he let the Lord down, you think you'd probably understand grace too. The Apostle Peter wrapped and bookended his second epistle in grace, stating in 2 Peter 1 and verse 2, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Don't miss what this text is saying. If you have God's grace, you will have peace, and it will be multiplied to you when you have the knowledge of what that grace means. And brethren, we got to get a knowledge of what that grace means when we give it our best and fail. We can't mess grace up any more than the person that thinks it's a license to sin. We can't throw it out of the equation as never being there when we fail after giving it our best. Look how he closes his epistle in 2 Peter 3.18. 
According to the English Standard Version, 2 Peter 3.18 says, the bookend on the other end of 2 Peter says, you therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability. No, you can't lose your own stability. You can't stop serving and loving and being obedient to God. No, you can't. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grow in the grace and knowledge. Understand how much God loves you. Understand in His sight how perfect He's made you. Understand when you give it your best and fail, God will cover you. Yes, we love because God first loved us. Yep. And because of God's great love for us, Jesus on that cross, we should love and serve the Lord with every fiber of our being. We need to love, Jesus told us, we need to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. Every fiber of our being we need to seek to please God. Yes. But never fail to understand that when you do that and you give it all you've got. When you give it all you've got. And sometimes you fail and you let God down and you let yourself down. Understand that God understands. And he gives more grace. Do not ever let Satan convince you to subtract God's grace from God's salvation equation. Don't turn the good news into bad news. Listen, I want you to turn to one more scripture with me this morning and it's in Romans 5. I know it sounded like I was winding down, but I, I am, but not that quick. Turn to Romans 5. Got a question for you. Do you understand that you cannot take the grace of God out of your ongoing salvation experience any more than you can out of your initial salvation experience. What do we tell people that we're trying to convert? What do we tell them? Tell them about God. Tell them about how much Jesus loves them. Tell them if they'll be baptized, God will forgive all the sins. Is that right? Pretty accurate? God will forgive your sins. God's got grace to cover your sins. That's what we tell them. So, why is it after we've been a Christian for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, that all of a sudden God's run out of grace? Some of us live that way, brethren. Now again, I'm not talking about willful sin. But here's my question. If when we were not living for God, if when we were enemies of God, if when we were not even trying to please him, God loved us enough that he sent Jesus to die on that cross, then what makes us think that once we become Christians, he loves us less? Do you ever think about that? I want an answer to that. If God loved you enough when you were in your sins to send Jesus Christ to be spiked to that cross for you, what makes you think that now you've become his child, part of his family, and had your sins washed away by the blood of Jesus, that he loves you less than that? That he doesn't have any grace, that he can't forgive you? Paul said that ain't possible. Final text, Romans 5. Paul says in verse 6, for when we were still still without strength in due time. Christ died for the ungodly. That's how much he loved you then. 
For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone will even dare die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. When we were rotten and nasty and dirty and ugly and separated from God by our sins, that's when Jesus died for us. That's the grace God has for us. And, and so Paul goes on to say, much more than. In other words, if he had that much love and grace for you then, now, now, much more than, now that you're Christian, having now been justified by his blood, the word justified I've heard said it means just as if I'd never sinned because you're under his grace. Much more than now, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. For if we, when we were enemies... We were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. If we got that, God's grace and love for you is so great, he sent Jesus to die for you. Now that you're his child, how much more compassion does he have? That's why he says in the next verse, hey, that's why we rejoice. Verse 11. Not only that, but we rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have received reconciliation. Wow. It is only by accepting God's gift of grace and mercy by being baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of our sins that we are made initial, initially acceptable in the beloved and have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our sins according to the riches of his grace it's all about his grace to begin with ephesians 2 6 and 7. it's all about his grace as we continue to try to do our best for him did you know it is only through constantly experiencing and accessing his grace once we have initially received it that we can actually serve god acceptably did you know that it's only because of his continued grace that we can continue to serve god acceptably in his kingdom that's hebrews chapter 12 and verse 28 by the way If you are in need of his grace in either of those ways, either through finally accepting his amazing grace in the waters of Christian baptism as you obey the gospel and your sins are forgiven, or if you need to accept his grace by accessing even more of it and having us pray for you to understand what a gift this is. If you need more of his grace because of your inevitable inability to perform perfectly, then may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work, 2 Thessalonians 2:16 and 17, as you come forward right now, as we stand and as we sing.